This is a special U.S. election theme offer for our podcast listeners. Subscribe to The Spectator, 10 weeks for the price of one, plus a theme commemorative Spectator mug with Joe Biden and Donald Trump's mug on it. Be sure to get in now before it's gone. Spectator.co.uk forward slash USA. Hello and welcome to the edition, The Spectator's look at some of the most intriguing and important issues within the week's magazine. I'm Lara Prendergast. This week, we'll discuss whether Trumpism is finally over and for how long the fallout from this election might last. I'll also look at care for disabled children during lockdown and ask the Education Select Committee Chair what needs to be done to help families more. And to finish, we'll be discussing whether our churches have abandoned us in our hour of need. First up, the US election has been something of a roller coaster ride. Donald Trump falsely announced that he had won, but once again confounded pollsters by performing better than expected. At the time of recording, the count is still ongoing, but Joe Biden looks set to reach 270 Electoral College votes against a backdrop of legal challenges by the president's team. In this week's cover piece, Freddie Gray says Trump has shown how well he understands America. He joins me now with Kate Andrews, The Spectator's economics correspondent. Freddie, you're in America right now, and we still didn't know the result. But what do you think is likely to happen in the next few days? Well, at the moment, it looks as if Joe Biden is going to win. The Trump campaign is going to contest and contest and contest. We're already seeing quite a number of legal challenges emerging. It's going to get very, very nasty. But I think if Joe Biden wins Nevada, which it looks as though he will, and then Arizona does not flip back towards Trump, I think we'll see a, a Biden victory in the in the coming hours. Kate, do you think these these legal challenges from the Trump team will come to anything? Well, I think they'll be pursued. The one that I'm going to be watching is in Pennsylvania, which isn't simply a demand for a recount or a delay, really, of counting the vote. But Donald Trump has has said on multiple occasions, even before this election happened, that he plans to take the decisions in Pennsylvania to the Supreme Court about which ballots can be counted. This could create a new precedent in American politics, possibly if the president were successful. But as Freddie notes, the, the, the key now is that Pennsylvania doesn't look like it is going to decide the race. Joe Biden has his path to victory without it. And if one more state declares in the next few hours or at any point, then Joe Biden gets over that key 270 electoral votes. I'd add to that, Kate, you're quite right. But I'd add also that it looks like Biden might well turn Pennsylvania in the end because the late votes are swinging massively in his favor. But it is just absurd, isn't it, that, you know, two days after Election Day, we're not going to know the results in Pennsylvania, in Allegana County, which I think is near Pittsburgh, the staff, the counting staff, have just taken the day off because they were, they were due to, assuming the count had happened. I mean, I think America isn't a banana republic, but it's doing a pretty good impression one, of one at the moment. Kate, you, you wrote in The Spectator a few weeks ago about how, despite being a Republican, you were going to be voting for Biden. But as a Republican, do you, do you look at this and think this is all a bit weird or are you feeling OK about it? Well, it was always going to be a strange election. You had tens of millions of people voting by postal ballot for the first time because they didn't want to show up on polling day to risk exposing themselves to the virus. It was always going to be difficult, more difficult than normal anyway, to count these votes. Under the Constitution, every state has the right to decide the process by which they do this. I think Freddie makes a good point that Americans still deserve a bit better and something a bit more timely. I think that this this time gap has enabled 
enabled the president to come out and say, frankly, outrageous things about the state of the results. Um, anything that he might have challenged, even credibly, he has undermined because he has implied that this election is some kind of sham. In many ways, he's he's returning to the Democrats something that they did to him, albeit not remotely on the same level, by trying to undermine his victory in 2016. We had the Russia investigation, which went on for years as the Democrats claimed that he had colluded with foreign powers to win his victory. And they didn't find evidence for that. And of course, it wasn't true. It turns out the American people liked a bit of what he had to say. To your original question, Laura, as a Republican, I'm actually quite delighted with what looks like will be Joe Biden in the Oval Office and the Republicans keeping the Senate. This means that power is split. They're going to have to compromise and possibly most importantly, that Democrats aren't going to be able to do anything too radical without the Republicans' consent. Fred, you've written the cover piece this week and in it you say that this this election wasn't about race or racism but about class. Can you can you explain what, what you meant by that? Well, I was just waffling largely because um, we had a <laughs> we had a deadline and we didn't know what was going to happen. But no, I think that there is there is some I should be serious, shouldn't I? Uh, there is some oh, truth uh, in this idea that Trump has has remade the Republican Party as the party of the badly paid and the downtrodden, and that's now beginning to apply across the races. And so the Republican Party now has the possibility in the future of having a um, kind of diverse, multiracial coalition of the poor. It's the party of the, the working classes, which is an extraordinary turnaround if you think about the history of American politics. Mm. And Kate, I mean, Freddie also says that there's this rainbow coalition of Republican voters. Do you think Trump has left the Republican Party in a good state or a worse state than when he found it? There's going to be a lot of soul searching to do, especially when a party loses after its first term or loses the Oval Office after its first term. That's, you know, historically that tends not to happen. So there were clearly missteps. I will echo Freddie's very clearly thought out and, 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 and deeply considered analysis that he wrote in the magazine this week that the Republican Party is changing in its coalition. Demographics are changing as well. He was more successful with minority groups. The one group where he didn't increase his vote share was with white males, white working class males. And so this presents new opportunities really for the Republican Party. But they're going to have to be willing to acknowledge what went wrong. I mean, I think the the frustrating thing for the president in this election is that it's quite obvious now that he could have won. And while he did increase his vote share with minority groups, and I'm sure a lot of that comes down to how good the economy was and the fact that many Americans felt that before the COVID crisis hit, I have very little doubt that he lost this election still because of his very bombastic and outrageous personality. Pollsters are indicating that had he not been so outrageous in that first presidential debate, had he not put on such a show when he was diagnosed with COVID and and made light of the virus when so many Americans at this point knew somebody who had died from it, he might actually be at this moment declaring victory himself. So I think the mistakes lie with him and the Republicans will have to acknowledge they supported him. Many of them did anyway uh, for the past four years. Fred, judging from sort of reports on British TV at the moment, everything looks rather tense. Does it feel quite tense out there to you? Uh, yes. I went to the Trump Hotel last night, which is sort of where, where kind of MAGA world, Trump world hangs out. And the atmosphere was, I'd say, subdued and tense. I think there was a sort of unsaid, unspoken uh, admission. You will think the election's been stolen from them, but they, I think, 
they're sort of starting to accept that maybe it, it's gone. And Kate, having just voted for Biden, how are you feeling about a Biden presidency? You say in your piece that American politics is, is sort of exciting and nerve-wracking. Are you feeling excited or nervous about Biden? I'm definitely feeling both, although, as said, the fact that the Republicans look like they'll control the Senate definitely gives me peace of mind. At the moment, I'm I'm far less worried about who's actually going to the White House or who's gained or lost their seat as I am about the state of American democracy and the trust that we have in the system. I think it has been badly undermined. I think Trump is primarily responsible for that, even what he's done in the past 48 hours is truly unprecedented. But to be honest, I think both parties are are very much responsible for trying to undermine each other for, you know, years now. The Democrats did it to President Trump, the Republicans did it to President Obama, and back and back and back. And it's just just been becoming more divided. I've always hoped that somebody like Joe Biden would prioritize unity in bringing the country together. Remains to be seen whether or not he will be in the Oval Office still. We still don't have that result. And if he does make it there, what he'll do. I'm I'm cautiously hopeful. But, you know, this is a very trying time for America and its institutions. I suspect we'll rise above it. We wait and see. Thank you, Freddie, and thank you, Kate. In this week's magazine, Sam Carlyle writes powerfully about caring for her daughter in lockdown. 19-year-old Elvie has RCDP, a rare condition that requires 24-hour care. Sam says the government needs to do more to help children with disabilities and their families, particularly during lockdown. Sam joins me now with Robert Halfen, Chair of the Education Select Committee. Sam, in this week's issue, you write about the lack of support available to families of disabled children during the pandemic. Can you tell us about your experience of lockdown? Yep, so I have a disabled daughter, Elvie. She's 19, but she still goes to school. She goes to secondary school. When lockdown started, the school closed. We didn't hear much from them for the first few weeks. But also all care that we get for my daughter Elvie was withdrawn. So no one could come into the house. We, at that point, couldn't go out. And we were left on our own feeling very isolated. Now, when you talk about a disabled child, there are amazing, brilliant things about having a child with a disability that, you know, widen your world. But there are also many, many difficult things. And it's never the disability that's really the problem. It's the kind of support around them. So anyway, it was really hard to get support. But when lockdown happened the first time anything that was in place just had to be withdrawn and so we were on our own so for example people that came in to help me shower her at night that couldn't happen she's quite difficult to move around we couldn't have any help with that you know just keeping her entertained because she has learning disabilities as well she's 19 but she has the mental age of three she didn't understand lockdown So keeping her entertained all day, every day, she sleeps just three hours a night. It was exhausting, frankly, and it was isolating and it was quite terrifying because we couldn't see an end to it. And, you know, I challenge any parent to sort of live under those conditions and sort of come through strong. It was really, really difficult. 
can imagine. And I mean, have you spoken to other parents who are in a similar situation? Yeah, I am. So she goes to uh, special needs schools. So there were a lot of parents within the school. We were talking to each other. We were all kind of trying to look after each other over the phone, over WhatsApp. But, you know, it was without being able to physically visit each other and give each other, you know, physical support. It was it was really, really hard. And, And parents... I'm a journalist, I speak to parents across the country a lot about this subject and I could see from the the Twitter feeds, the Facebook groups, the WhatsApp groups that people were breaking and and really seriously struggling to, to A, look after themselves, B, look after their children, probably the other way around that should be, and also look after the other members of the family, so siblings as well who were having to you know, do schoolwork while they've got a disabled child in the house, if if it's a child with learning disabilities or behavioural problems, which can come with disabilities, then, you know, the whole family having to live around that and manage it and, and not have support and not be able to go out was just unbearable, frankly, for a lot of families. Robert, what do you make of Sam's experience? Well, Sam's article, and she's written about this in the past, is very moving, but what I would say is that uh, sadly, it's the experience of so many of my constituents who have children with special educational needs of thousands and thousands of parents across the country. And the parents, I mean, the COVID has made it worse. And we know that there was a survey, I think it was done in May, that said that 70 to 80% of families uh, who had children with special educational needs had significantly worsened emotional and mental health difficulties because of everything that they were going through. And COVID has really exposed an existing problem of parents wading through this awful, awful treacle of bureaucracy, the postcode lottery provision, the lack of trained qualified professionals in school, the buck passing that goes on, whether it's the local authority, whether it's the school, whether it's the uh, health part of the equation, which isn't, if you have an EHC plan, is often non-existent or, or just doesn't work properly. And we've looked at this in our inquiry, which was an 18-month-long inquiry, perhaps one of the biggest inquiries any select committee ever did. And there needs to be change. There needs to be radical change. There was a 2014 Act that everybody thinks was a good Act, but it's been very poor in implementation. The government say they've got a review going on, but this has been going on for a very, very long time. And that review should have been published by now, even with COVID, giving out recommendations about how and actual policy solutions about how we can solve this problem for so many thousands of parents. It's worth remembering we're talking about 15 percent, huge amount of children. 15 percent of our children have special educational needs. And so many of them have this uh, face, these difficulties as to town. One of the points that Sam makes is in the piece is that the government gave ten ten million pounds to the family fund charity, but it doesn't sound like that made a huge amount of difference. Robert, do you think they should have? Do you think the government should be doing more? Well, of course, that money's welcome, and the government announced there'd be seven hundred million extra on top of the existing budget for special educational needs over the next year. But it's about also how you spend that money. So the government gave councils a transitions fund of, of, I think it was £500 million. That money wasn't, it was never sort of made clear if, uh, and examined about how that money should be spent. Councils spend £100 million on tribunals, which they usually lose. 
most of the tribunals are lost by councils, the vast majority, that money could be spent on the front line. So it isn't, of course, more money is needed, absolutely, but it isn't just about money, it's about how that money is being spent and about the bureaucracy that is behind it and whether there is a will from the top of government to actually get a grips with to this problem and actually come up with policies to make sure that 2014 Children's Act works properly. Sam, you say in your piece that this, the idea of a second national lockdown, which we're now in, is terrifying. Do you feel like you've got more support now? Well, my daughter's school is open at the moment, but for the last two weeks she's been off. I mean, this happened to overlap with half term, but, you know, as with all schools, there's there's going to be cases and there will be children that have to who are in that bubble have to self-isolate. So for the last two weeks she's been off. Again, we've been in that situation where people can't come in, she can't see anyone. So... It's been me and her, her stepdad, her brother kind of looking after her again. So although, I mean, what is really terrifying is the idea that the schools will close again and that will basically take away that little bit of time you get in the day to kind of live your life, sort out the house, look after her brother's issues. Yeah, so so that's the biggest fear, I think. But also the long-term effect of this is is huge. As Robert just said, this is... This is a, a really super flawed system. I mean, Elvie is now 19, and I thought at the beginning this could only get better. We had David Cameron in government who talked so well and so articulately about his own son and brought in those changes that Robert just talked about. And there was great hope around that time, and, and, and I've just seen it get worse and worse and worse over the years. And I don't want any other family who who gets a diagnosis when their child is a baby or or a toddler to have to go through what families are still having to go through now it's just it's just horrendous well but one of the points that Sam also makes is that there's the worry that cash strapped local authorities might start to use covid as an excuse to cut the services that already do exist do you think there's reason to be concerned there um yes there is it's good that the government are as i mentioned a moment ago putting an extra £700 million. But what needs to happen, in my view, is that every parent should be given a neutral advocate to help them wade through the bureaucracy. It's something our Education Committee recommended because it is very hard to do this. And not every family has is able to lobby their MP for one reason or another or knows how to navigate the system. They need that neutral advocate. We need more power for a stronger inspection regime to improve accountability. We need much more powers for the local ombudsman to look at what's going on in the school gates. There needs to be some knocking heads together between the education department and the health department to make sure that the health side of this actually is real in practice. And there needs to be a proper standard across the board in terms of the time it takes to get EHCP plans. Parents are often waiting weeks and weeks and weeks to get a plan. The COVID made it much, much worse as the regulations were relaxed. It's good that they've been put back since, uh, I think, the end of July. But there are a number of things that could make a real difference. And I, I really believe that, as I mentioned at the beginning, you know, there is not an MP in this country who doesn't have parents who come and see them with children with special educational needs. And you, you're in your surgery and you're listening to what is going on and you feel a sense of shame that this is allowed to go on, that the parents have to struggle day and night to get the right care for their children. And all these parents are asking for is that 
their children have a, a level playing field and that they have the same opportunities as everybody else. And this should not be happening in, the, in this day and age. And COVID or not, the review has got to be published. The policies have got to be announced. The Act of 2014 has got to be, uh, the Children's Act has got to be implemented properly. And they should really look at some of the recommendations that we made in our Select Committee report, some of that I, I've just highlighted to you. I think the money is important because it would be a sign that government takes us seriously because I think we feel that we'd never get talked about. We feel that any guidance that's given, certainly around COVID, it, it, it normally takes weeks until someone thinks, oh, we haven't mentioned disabled children, whereas, you know, we're at home desperate and probably in as much need as everyone else. So the guidance for going back to school for, for this period of time, for this lockdown, I received an email from school this morning, which is, you know, hopeless. We're in it now. So I just think we need to be, the government needs to look at us and take us seriously and acknowledge that we're even here. Thank you, Sam, and thank you, Robert. And finally, should churches keep their doors open despite the pandemic? Laura Freeman thinks so, and writes in this week's Spectator about how even before the latest lockdown, it was hard to find an open church. She joins me together with Reverend Steve Morris from St Cuthbert's Church in North Wembley. Laura, in this week's issue, you write about what you say is one of the saddest signs that you've ever seen. What was the sign and why did you find it so upsetting? Well, this was a, a sign pinned onto a parish notice board in a churchyard which said, prayers by appointment only. And it just seemed to me so unwelcoming, inhospitable, uncharitable, because I think the whole point of a church is you ought to be able to go in any time and just drop in, whether you're walking through the churchyard, whether you're a parishioner, whether you're bicycling through the village. And I think if you feel moved to go in and say a prayer, you ought to be able to do that and, and not to have to sort of, you know, fill out a kind of online doodle in order to go in a week's time. Steve, is, is this a sign that you've got at your church? No, not at all. It's interesting because I'm, I'm in an urban parish, I'm in Brent. You know, most of the churches where, where we are are open all day. It helps that the vicarage is right next door to the church, so people frequently knock on the door and ask us to, to pray for them. I mean, I, I, I had a similar thing. I've been to Norfolk and there was a church that had all the old security cameras, and I think probably there's a particular issue. You know, I mean, not many organisations are open all day with no one there. Not, not these days. I mean, you know, there are lots of examples of things being, you know, stolen or whatever. So I don't think the church is alone in finding it hard to remain present in places where there's no one around. So do you, I mean, do you think that Corona is almost sort of providing an excuse for the churches to not have to kind of have someone there the whole time? No, I think quite the opposite, actually. I mean, I think Corona has been a massive kind of rallying call for the church. My experience of the church is that we're responding, you know, really quite extraordinary, you know, not just in terms of prayer, but doing stuff. You know, we're, we're part of our local community. And, and the churches I'm, I'm, I'm involved with are really keenly, you know, helping people be less lonely. So I don't think it's an excuse. I'm not saying there isn't an issue. I'm just simply saying I don't think it's an excuse. Laura, you talk in your piece about this romantic notion that in, in our times of need, we can cry sanctuary and seek refuge in a church. Do, do you think we're slightly sort of losing losing sight of that at the moment? I, I think we may be. I mean, I, I had a, a friend who described going to a church on a Sunday morning just thinking she could pitch up and being told she wasn't on the list. And, and that's one thing for a nightclub, but I don't think that's right for a church, especially a small village church that's more or less empty. 
And I think Melanie McDonough's also written for Coffee House about, you know, her two children trying to go to mass and being told, you know, all full up, no room at the inn. And that cannot be right. And I think, I think it's especially sad, I think, when it's young people who, you know, are saying, you know, I want to be part of, you know, the Church of England and I, you know, or, or the Catholic Church and, and are actually being turned away at the door. And I, just, I do want to say, you know, I don't want to attack, you know, vergers and parish priests and vicars who are doing a huge amount to kind of keep the show on the road in really difficult times. But I, I do think that, you know, having a church open only for prayers on a Wednesday for three hours in the afternoon, you know, I think is, is a terrible shame. I suppose the thing is, during COVID, now I'm a, I'm a parish priest in Brent, but I'm also helping a parish, it's a small church built in the 11th century, and, and we've had to have a booking in system because it just wouldn't be safe otherwise. I mean, you can get about 12 people in there if you keep the social distance. And we've been really trying to make sure that we open it up for people. So there is a kind of particular issue about particular kinds of churches. I mean, I really, you know, I loved Laura's kind of romantic. It's beautiful. You know, I'd love to have been, I'd love to have had a childhood where I cycled around East Anglia with my Pevsner and my mum and dad and <laughs> popping into churches. But the truth is we went to Butlins. You know, you know, I would have been having a three-legged race or I would have been on the old donkey derby. I mean, it wasn't part of my family tapestry. So in a way, I don't think that I, I missed anything. You know, I came to faith in a church that was in a, a lecture hall in, in, in a university run by South African folk. And I, was, I haven't been more surprised in my whole life. It wasn't in a heritage building, but I'm, I'm out with God there and it changed everything for me. And I think that's the thing that I want to see. I, I, I mean, I love old buildings, but I, but I want people to have their lives changed. And I had my life changed when I was 40. And Steve, what about the current guidance? Obviously, lockdown two has has begun today. What what has been the church's response, and, and and do you think that's been the right response? Well, I think we've got very little room for for manoeuvre. I mean, I think it is right that we take a pause with everyone else. You know, during the next four weeks, we're, we're trying to open a bit for private prayer. I mean, I'm I'm finding that we're we're still in touch with people, but I think we need to take the medicine as as we are and doing it well. I think with the rest of the population. And I suppose we should, we should probably look towards Christmas. Obviously, Christmas is going to be a bit different this year. But, I mean, do you think we'll even be able to gather for Christmas, for a carol service, say? I think we'll be able to gather. And I really, I know we all want to. I think everyone wants to. I'm sure the government wants us to as well. We don't know the actual shape of it yet. But I think I'm hopeful. You know, I really am hopeful. I mean, the spirit of Christmas can't really be extinguished, whatever happens. So something will happen. And I'm, I'm hoping it will be creative. And I'm hoping people will really, you know, understand that this is a time of great hope. Laura, are you feeling hopeful about Christmas? Cautiously. I w- went to Evensong at Westminster Abbey last week. I was taken by another spectator writer, Isenda Maxton Graham. And I think that combination of architecture, music, song, I know you can carry faith with you anywhere and, and you ought to be able to you know, summon it up, you know, in a lecture hall. But I, I do think, you know, we are shut out, you know, spiritually, aesthetically, physically, you know, if we can't actually be in our churches and cathedrals. And I think it would just be so sad if, if in the run-up to Christmas we couldn't have you know a bit of a nativity play and a carol service and mince pies afterwards and then the whole shebang yeah I mean I, I would be, I would be sad about that the funny thing is you know that when I was when, when we were growing up we didn't go to churches but when I was in my maybe in my 20s and beyond I would always like to pop into churches but in a way they never had that 
real impact on me because they didn't have all those facets, you know, the sense of community, the sense of place, the sense of prayer, the sense of all those other things that you need. So in a way, you know, just going into the building, I liked it, but it didn't have any impact on my life at all. I mean, I don't want churches to close. I think it's wonderful when they're open. I love it. But in a way, that's why I'm quite hopeful because I think that, you know, God's pretty creative and he's out there, you know, he's, in, he's doing stuff. And our, our job is to join in rather than to feel we can force the pace. Thank you, Laura, and thank you, Steve. And that's it for this week. If you pick up the issue, you can read everything we've talked about on the podcast and plenty more. We've got Jonathan Miller writing about Macron's battle with Islamic extremism. Alterto Giublini considers the ethics of lockdown. And Lynn Barber asks why buying a car is such an ordeal. Thanks for listening, and do join us again next week. 